first of all, just uh, welcome back. Uh, we've had a little bit of a break for many of us who uh, make it accustomed to attend 242 Church. We've had our summer break, and uh, for those of you that have come out before, welcome back. To those of you for whom this might be your first class, welcome. We hope that you find this uh, uh, mentally stimulating and spiritually edifying and emotionally encouraging. And we also hope that uh, there's opportunities for you to build relationships. So we're going to do things a little little bit differently this fall. Um, we'd like to include a, a brief prayer time in our, our evening. And uh, we'll do that halfway through. So we'll have our first half of the class like we normally do. And then we'll have a 15-minute window, kind of 10 minutes reserved for you to pray by yourself or with someone beside you or in small groups. Um, Adriana, starting next week, is going to bring some little papers that will have some prayer requests on them. Tonight you can just share with your group or you know, just pray by yourself, whatever you feel comfortable with. And uh, as soon as you're done praying, you can just get up and help yourself to some refreshments. And then we'll come back and we'll have our second uh, lecture for the evening. And when we hear junior high students screaming down the hall, we're done. That's kind of the way it works. So um, once again, welcome. I think I know... I know all of you, so I don't have to introduce myself, but uh, at some point in the night, if there's someone sitting close by to you that you don't know, it probably would be nice for you to tell them who you are. Just introduce yourself. Um, another thing is, with regard to refreshments, uh, we have a, a small team of people that just sort of take it upon themselves to, to prepare the coffee and whatnot, but um, we're always looking for students to bring food in. So if you wanted to sort of look through the course schedule and circle a date and make a note to bring uh, some cookies or squares or something. Oh, we got a little sign-up sheet? Okay, great. So you just want to pass it up and down the rows? Okay, so Bob's got a sign-up sheet. That'll just come around. Um, maybe I'll bring it up to the front, and then we'll just kind of go around to the back. So just make sure every table gets it. And if, if you want to just throw your name down that you're going to bring something out where we know everything's covered because... The class just isn't as good if there's not snacks. It's the way it works, right? Okay. I heard a lot of people say that's true. I'm not sure what that means. Yeah. Is that you, Jordan? Yeah. All right. So did everybody get some notes? So you should have three documents. One is sort of a, for lack of a better term, a little syllabus or rubric or course description. It just says moral dilemmas, Christian ethics in the top. Then the second one will say approaching... Ethical choices, that's your second one. And the third one is the particular topic we'll start into tonight, which is the ethics of war. Okay, so those are the three you should have. If you don't have those, they're available at the table right by James Palanaki. Okay? All right. So, uh, once again, welcome. And... Um, just uh, by way of introduction, we'll just look quickly at this sheet, which is sort of your course outline. Um, we're looking at moral dilemmas, and another term for this topic would be ethics, Christian ethics. So there are three main branches of inquiry that undergird our faith, and here they are. We have theology, which is the content of the Christian faith. We have our apologetics, which is the defense 
of the Christian faith against opposing worldviews and religions. And we have ethics, which deals with the practice of the Christian faith. Now, formally speaking, when we, when we talk about ethics, we don't so much talk about like, um, you know, how to get along with such and such or how to raise your children or how to have a great marriage. We tend to deal with more controversial type issues and in particular things that pose for the Christian dilemmas. So this is just a smattering of, of um, topics that uh, we will touch on most of which we'll touch on or, or you'll touch on in your private reading and study. We have reproductive ethics, uh, in vitro fertilization, and all the different reproductive choices that people have today. There's a lot of ethical questions coming to, to Christians as you think about uh, you know, issues of artificial insemination and uh, all these sorts of things that we, we struggle with in, in the area of reproductive ethics. War. That's a huge one. Uh, lying, you might say, is that even a dilemma? Yes, it is a dilemma. Is a soldier permitted to lie to an enemy on the battlefield? Gambling and gaming, kind of important for us to think about, being that we live in Windsor. Environmentalism, lots of questions about the Christian's relationship to the environment. Uh, technological ethics, lots of things in technology that uh, ch that sometimes people find a little challenging. Is this is this acceptable technology for me to use, or is there checks and balances? Uh, cosmetic surgery, cloning, mercy killing, euthanasia, all sorts of different questions that we struggle with. So as Christians, we know there's right and there's wrong, but then we have all the different scenarios we're confronted with. And it's not so much that we don't know what's right and wrong, but when we take the basic rights and wrongs of the Bible and we apply them to the modern context and all of the different scenarios that come our way, some of which are spoken of in the Bible, some of which aren't. Okay, in the Bible, they weren't struggling with issues of cloning or reproductive ethics. Things were pretty simple back then. But we live in a different time, and so we need to somehow take the principles, the yeses and nos of the Bible, and figure out how do they apply to the complexities of modern Western society. So this is an introduction then to moral decision-making taught from obviously a Christian worldview with a view to exploring the significant ethical dilemmas that we face. Now, if you're into building a library, one book I think is, is uh, a, a pretty good read for, for most people. It's not overly scholastic. It's not it's not written for five-year-olds. It's, it's right down the middle. Um, it's called Ethical Dilemmas by uh, J. Kirby Anderson. And I did check today just to make sure it's still in print. It is still in print. You can buy it on Amazon, for instance, or you could also buy it for your Kindle or your tablet. And I think the most expensive copy I saw was $7.99. So all of you can afford it, in other words. So if you'd like to buy that, that'd be good supplementary reading and it would also be a good addition to your library as you think through the issues. Now, it is 1998. That's the that's the um, publication date. So some of the like the stuff on technology or reproductive ethics that might be a little bit dated, but most of the basic stuff is is more or less timeless. So why are we here tonight and for the next seven weeks, eight in total? Well, we want to understand the different approaches or philosophies that Christians use for moral decision-making. 
This is very important. Frankly, I think this is more important than some of the discussions we're going to have about the specifics. You need to understand that not every Christian approaches the issue of ethics from the same starting point. So you need to know what your starting point is, what your parameters are, and then consistently apply those to your ethical dilemmas. This is going to be very, I think, a very interesting topic of discussion for tonight. Now, I'm not going to tell you what those are until we get into that lecture, but suffice to say we'll try to understand the differences. The second thing we want to do is to understand the ethics of Scripture. In other words, the yeses and noes, the rights and wrongs, and how they apply to the modern context using exegetical, which means to study the meaning of a text, and deductive logical reasoning. Now, you might say, well, can't we just use exegesis. Why do we need to talk about logic? Well, because, again, not every one of these situations is addressed directly in the Bible. So we need to understand what the Bible says and then reasonably try to apply it to situations that aren't necessarily in the Bible. Okay, So we have to use some logical reasoning there. Third, we want to learn to defend ethical choices rationally, both within and without the church. So sometimes we'll have situations in life groups or in church where people disagree on what's right and what's wrong. In fact, historically, churches have even split over, for instance, views of war. There are certain churches that forbid their members to go to war. And we need to understand what the reasons for that are. And... Then secondly, outside of the church, as we live our lives out in modern society, we are often called upon to give answer for the beliefs that we hold. For those of you that are just coming in, there's lots of seats up in this area. I know it's a little awkward, but we're all friends. In fact, let's, let's just give a, hand, a round of applause for our latecomers tonight. All right, there we go. All right. And let's, them all ha let's have them all stand and introduce themselves and tell us their favorite color. Okay, fourth, to gain experience dialoguing about ethical choices. Now, this is very important in an objective rather than emotional way. Now, I understand that many of these topics, especially the ones that relate to life and death, are emotionally charged topics. I mean, can you really talk about mercy killing without some measure of emotion? So we understand these bring emotions to the forefront of our minds and bodies, but when it comes to actually shaping the minds of young people or having meaningful conversations with people, in a sense we've got to put our emotions aside and we've got to be able to sort of unpack these from a logical, biblical perspective. So we're going to practice that, in a sense, in this class by talking about it in a logical way uh, without necessarily being confronted with these situations in this class. So here are some things, some tips that I might want to suggest just to help you to get the most out of the class. Um, if you can purchase the textbook, I'd encourage it and just read that course textbook. And I, I was explaining this to one of my children recently. They were telling me there's a particular subject they don't like. And I said, well, if you just go to class and you listen to your teacher and you read the textbook, Maybe you'll only ever be a C student in that area. But if you go online and you read more broadly in this particular field of study, you're going to have a much broader perspective and it's going to help you when you come into class
to be a little more knowledgeable of this field. So this is what I'm encouraging you to do too. Don't just study precisely what we are talking about, but start to read broadly in the area of Christian ethics, and this will help to shape your thinking and your ability to respond appropriately to the situations you encounter. Secondly, attend, and there's a little word, and participate okay, in class discussions. If you don't feel comfortable, and I'm sure many of you wouldn't necessarily speaking out loud, uh, talk about it with your fellow students afterwards at break, you know, when you're in life group, whatever it might be. Just keep the conversation going. Now, uh, when I taught this course several years ago, I had students do presentations. I'm going to do something a little different, but um, I'm still sort of unpacking it in my mind. But f for just to sort of get you um, starting to be prepared for what we're going to do the final week, I'd like you to start to think about one of the questions I've listed there. Sort of do some reading, do some thinking, do some mulling over one of these questions and in a week or two I'm going to tell you how we're going to handle those questions in our final night of class. So these are some, some very practical questions. Is it okay to bet on sports? Is it okay to gamble? Is it okay to enter draws? Is pulling the plug ever justified? Is it okay to kill a house invader? Is it a sin to smoke? Is it okay to teach children about Santa? Is participation in Halloween permissible? Is it right to have cosmetic surgery? And is it okay to withhold information when directly asked? Okay, so I want you to circle one of those questions that interests you and just start to think about it over the next few weeks and I'll, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do with it later on in the course. You'll notice the, the, the course dates there are some gaps because I'm away at a conference or whatnot, but we have the 8th, the 15th, the 22nd, the 29th, and the 6th, and the 13th, and the 20th. Then there's a gap, and then the 3rd. Um, I think I originally, when we shared this with the church, I, I made a mistake and only had seven weeks, but the intention was to do an eight-week course. Okay, And then just a list of some of the topics we're going to talk about. So let's get into this handout. And for those of you that are just coming in, there's three handouts at the table by the door that you'll need. So this one is entitled Approaching Ethical Choices. And what we're doing to get, us, get ourselves started is we are trying to understand the common approaches that non-Christians and then Christians use to unpack moral dilemmas. Now the reason why this is very important, there's many reasons. One is, have you ever had a situation like this? You're talking with an unbeliever, or maybe even a new believer that's very new to the Christian faith, and you're, you're saying to them, well this is actually wrong or this is right, you should do this, or you shouldn't do this. And they're sort of drawing a blank, and they respond with something like, well, isn't that just a matter of personal opinion? Or, well, what's right for you may not be right for me. I'm sure many of you have heard that in some way, shape, or form, maybe even verbatim. 
what's right for you is not necessarily right for me. Or, uh, as Pilate said, what is truth? In other words, is there even such a thing as right or wrong? And you're not sure how to respond because you thought that everybody understood there's right and wrong. You just got to kind of get the list of what's right, right, the list of what's wrong, right. Well, the, the point is, is that before we get into conversations with people about right and wrong, we have to make sure we've established a framework about what right is and what wrong is, how what right and wrong work themselves out in life. And so the systems I'm going to introduce to you can be divided into two categories. The one is called the non-absolute. There's several under this category. And the other is an absolute category. Okay, so some people, some people don't necessarily believe that there are what we call absolutes. Now, an absolute is basically a definitive truth. A definitive truth. So, an absolute statement would be something like, grass is green. I just looked out at the green grass and came to mind. Grass is green. Or, um, God is real. Or, I exist. Okay, from my perspective, these are absolute statements. But not everybody believes in absolutes. And this is very true of ethics. So, ethics deal, the topic of ethics deals with what is morally right or wrong, but the ethical stances vary as follows. So, under the non-absolute approach, the first one we've listed here is called antinomianism. Now, this comes from uh, two uh, Greek words, anti, which means against. It's found all through the English language now. Antichrist. And namos, which means law. So antinomianism means what? There's no law. So an antinomian, in terms of ethics, is a person that says, and again, most people don't even, haven't even heard this word, right? But there's antinomians out there that don't know they're antinomians. And they would say, everything in the world is in a constant state of change. Everything is changing. And therefore, there are no laws that govern behavior. No absolute laws. They may say, oh, it's okay to have municipal laws or laws to sort of keep everybody happy in a country or a family. But there's no absolute laws. There's, there's no law because things are always changing. So you might say, uh, well, I believe homosexuality is wrong. Why? Well, look at human history. Every society way back before such and such agreed that it was wrong. They'd say, so what? So what? Everything's changing. I mean, even if 100% of the people said it was wrong last year, things change. It doesn't matter. We're in a different time. So an, a per, there, are, there will be people that you encounter that just don't, they don't believe in right or wrong. 
Now, the just as a little aside, and this isn't an apologetics class, but the, 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 way, the quickest way to stop somebody who falls in any of these non-absolute categories is to ask the old question, whenever they make a statement, do you believe that absolutely, right? So if they were to say there, is, there, are, there are no laws that govern behavior, that's a law. I just caught you. No, 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 there are no laws. That's, you just made an absolute statement. To say there are no laws is, is to create a law to yourself. And in fact, if you press them on this and the decisions they make and the things they hold valuable, their expectations even for how you treat them. You know, if you take an antinomian and you walk up to them and punch them as hard as you can right in the face, they're going to react negatively. <laughs> but then you should ask the question, why is that a problem? Things are changing. <laughs> and even though my mother and father told me not to punch people in the face, I decided I want to. What's it to you? The point being is that antinomianism is not actually even a livable worldview. It's impossible to live. And so you don't have to be a, a trickster on this, but you can challenge people who say there's no such thing as truth. Really? What did you just say? There's no such thing as truth. That's a truth statement. Oh, uh, well, well, well. So you got to challenge them on this kind of stuff, right? But this is one of the, the kinds of people that you'll meet who do, do not believe there's any law. Now, category number two, it's a little bit different. There's overlap, but it's a little bit different. This is called the relativistic approach to ethics. Now, a lot of times we make the mistake of saying that people who are relativists don't believe in right or wrong. That's not true. They do believe in right or wrong. They would say there's right and there's wrong, but it's up to the individual to decide what's right or wrong and then to live by those rights and wrongs. So what's right for me then is not right for you is a different idea than there, there is no such thing as right or wrong. So the antinomian says there's no right or wrong. The relativist says there's right or wrong, but yours may differ from mine. Okay? And this I would argue is probably one of, it used to be the probably the dominant worldview, at least in Canada in the last several decades, there's a couple of others that have come into the mix, but uh, it's one of the dominant worldviews or approaches to ethics in our culture today. Okay. Now, the third one is not really a, it's not a formal system per se, but you'll find peop, lots of people that fall into this category. Um, and that is an emotional approach to ethics. If it feels good, Finish the sentence, do it. If it feels good, do it. If it feels wrong, don't do it. Johnny, you're 16. Here's a condom. Put it in your wallet. If you feel comfortable having sex with your girlfriend, go for it. If you don't feel comfortable, don't do it. It's up to you, Johnny. This is how a lot of parents approach the issue of sexual ethics with their teenagers. I, I personally know parents that fall into that category. And it's not so much of a, 
uh, a thought-through approach. It's just based on emotions. I want my kid to feel good. I want my kid to think well of me. So if it feels right to you, go for it. If it doesn't feel right to you, don't bother. By the way, all of the dominant moral debates that are taking place in our culture today are grounded or founded on one of these, these approaches. We often make the mistake of getting right into the issue without understanding the thinking behind it. We probably would be wiser to spend our time dealing with the thinking behind it rather than the issue itself. In public discourse, we'd probably get more bang for our buck, so to speak, if we did that. If we spent more time pointing out the inconsistencies of relativism, antinomianism, an emotional approach to ethics. If we, could, if we could convince people that these are inadequate systems to approach moral choices, we wouldn't be dealing with the homosexual debate today. It wouldn't even be on the table. Now we have situational approach to ethics. Now situation, the situationalist has been around for a long, long, long time. This is a historic ethical system. And um, a situationalist, now this is where you kind of got to listen carefully because one of the systems I'll introduce you to later called graded absolutism is often when, when you hear graded absolutism and you, you, you have a conversation about it, people hear situationalism in it, but it's just two totally different ways of, of approaching this. Situational ethics says that there is right and wrong, but right and wrong vary from situation to situation. The situation determines the rightness or wrongness of the action, not something, i.e. God or your priest or your mom or your dad or a police officer, or someone outside of it. So the idea here would be that um, a situational approach would, would approach, let's say, that the issue of taking life and say, uh, on the battlefield, given the situation, killing is fine. In uh, a civil court, we're all Canadians now, someone commits a crime, killing someone is always wrong. So this would be an example of uh, situationalism where it's the situation that determines the rightness or wrongness of an action, not some other body of truth or principle behind it. And so as situations change then, your right and wrong changes. So again, the situationalist says that there is right and wrong, but it changes from situation to situation. And the final one, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, this is the fifth one under the non-absolutist approaches, is just a utilitarian approach. Very simply, do whatever works. <laughs> if it works for you to cheat on your taxes to the benefit of your family, go for it. Okay? Um, but if you want to run for office... You should probably declare all your income because some watchdog will find out about you anyway. And in that situation, the best thing to do is to declare your taxes so it doesn't, there's no skeletons in the closet, so to speak. 
So that's the utilitarian approach. Now, you, I, I hope you know that all of these approaches don't really square with the Bible, and we will not be advocating any of them in this course, but you need to be familiar with them, even if you forget the specific titles. You need to be familiar with them on a conceptual level so that as you debate and dialogue with non-believers or new believers, you can sort of see the flaws or the errors in their system and try to respond appropriately. So let's then move over to the second category, which is various absolutist perspectives. And uh, there are three major ones that we'll introduce you to. You might have thought, hey, I thought there was only one. There's right and there's wrong. Well, no, there's, there's three. So these are classical Christian perspectives. The first one is called the unqualified absolute approach to ethics. So very simply, there is a strict code of rights and wrongs given to us by God that people are confronted with and must follow. So the key then to this unqualified approach is that there was always a right choice that not only should, but can be made. So you will always have an opportunity to do that which is right, that which is of the highest ethical value, black and white. There's rights and there's wrongs. Now, this is generally how we raise children. This is right and this is wrong. But then we get into adulthood and we realize that sometimes we're, we find ourselves in some complex situations and the right response is not always self-evident, even if you know your Bible. You sort of do a little head scratching. I don't really know what's right or wrong in this situation. You know, all these things we listed up here. Uh, you know, someone's dying on their bed. I know the value, human life is, is valuable. We shouldn't take human life. But this guy's been on life support now for a year. Machines are keeping him alive. Is it right or wrong to pull the plug? You go to your Bible. Oh, they didn't have that situation starts to get a little complex, right? Or a couple can't conceive. They're thinking, okay, well, God created physicians. You know, all truth is God's truth. They have all this reproductive technology out there. And they start to go through the list of options as to how they might conceive. I mean, is, is it okay to use donor sperm? And they start to scratch their head. Well, I, I don't know. Like They go to the Bible. There's no verse that says you can or you can't. So then they have to somehow figure out, is there anything else in Scripture that I need to bring into the mix? So the point being is, it would be nice if everything was just a clear yes or no. But in the world I live in, it's not always the case. This is a simple approach, but I'm going to suggest it's simplistic. It's simplistic. So the second category then is 
what's called a conflicting absolute approach to ethics. And this approach says that sometimes ethical choices will conflict. So sometimes you will find yourself in a situation where it almost seems like your only choices are both shady or what you would call bad choices maybe. And in such circumstances, you are to choose the lesser evil, but you are still guilty of sin, and therefore you are in need of forgiveness. So an example of that would be you're on the battlefield. It's wrong to take human life, but a guy is running at you, you shoot him, you kill him. Was that action right or wrong? In this world, in this ethical option, it's wrong but it's the lesser of two evils, the other evil being allowing this guy to run through your lines and shoot a bunch of other people. So you, you've, you've, you're confronted with two choices, pull the trigger, don't pull the trigger. Both of them are conflicted choices. They're both wrong. You choose the lesser of the two evils, but you still have actually committed a sin in the eyes of God. Or another classical example of this is uh, in war, uh, let's say you know Napoleon Bonaparte and his forces, uh, they invaded uh, Moscow. And uh, they are, you know, maybe going door to door, looting. And um, I don't know, maybe a soldier goes to someone's door and knocks and says, you know, do you have any um, gold in your house? And you do. So do I, do I lie? My Sunday school teacher told me lying was wrong. Do I punch the guy? My Sunday school teacher said I shouldn't hit people. Or do I let him in and facilitate his theft? So you have conflicting choices. So into this category, you choose what you consider the lesser of those three evils, but you've still sinned and you still need to ask for forgiveness. Now the third category is called graded absolutism or a graded approach to ethics. And the idea here is that all moral laws, so moral laws are traceable to God's attributes. So in other words, God just didn't sit down when he created the world and said, oh, let me think here, I gotta come up with some rights and wrongs. Get out a scratch pad, I'm gonna I'm going to throw these in the wrong category. I'm going to make these right just so people have some rights and wrongs to deal with. That's not how it works, but rather the graded absolutist, as do other absolute approaches, recognize that the absolutes that govern our behavior are in some way grounded or founded or rooted in the character and essence of God himself. It may take a little thinking and backtracking to figure out how, but they are. Therefore, just as God is absolutely unchangeable, moral laws are absolute and without exception. However, as with the conflicting approach, conflicts between moral choices, so when you're in those situations where you got like two or three bad options, it would appear, conflicts between moral choices are resolved by understanding that there are, this is a key word, exceptions to moral laws when they come in contact, conflict rather with one another. 
So when one chooses the lesser evil over the greater, the key difference between the conflicted approach and graded absolutist approach is in this sentence. One does not sin by choosing the lesser evil. Okay? So just to make this crystal clear, the graded absolutist and the conflicted absolutist both recognize there may be times when you have like two or three bad choices at your disposal. The conflicted absolutist says, pick the lesser of the two evils, but you're still sinning and need forgiveness. The graded absolutist says, pick the lesser of two evils, but you're not sinning when you pick the lesser of the two evils. Now, back to situational ethics. This is different than situational ethics because situational ethics says that rights and wrongs change given the circumstances. Neither the conflicted nor the graded absolutist would agree with that. There's still rights and there's still wrongs. But on the level of culpability, you're not culpable under the graded absolutist approach when you pick the lesser of two evils. So the word graded comes from the idea that if you were to take the moral laws of God and you were to grade them, that some are lesser evils than others. Now, the, the classic example of this that come, has probably come up in every ethics class in the last 50 years, any church, any seminary, any college, everywhere, is Nazi Germany. Most of you have probably heard this 100 times. The Gestapo knocks on the door of, let's say, a German citizen and says, are there any Jews in your house? Now, assuming that citizen knows the intentions of the Gestapo to take that person's life, the person who's answered the door is confronted with two choices. Do I lie to the Gestapo? Okay, I'm a German citizen. This guy is in a position of authority over me, elected by my country. Okay, we're not even talking about someone who's been like a Dutch person whose country's been invaded. Let's say you're a German Christian. The Bible says you obey the laws of a land, right? Somebody voted in Hitler. They voted him in. He was the rightful leader of Germany. But he was making some tyrannical choices and some German Christians hid Jews, German Jews, in their houses, which is illegal according to the laws of the land, right? So the Gestapo says, do you, straightforward question, it's a yes or no question, do you have any Jews in your house? So, if you were a situational ethicist, what would your take be on that situation? What would, how would you potentially respond and what would be your mindset? Okay, so you would lie. Now, when you say f when you would lie and figure you're correct, figure you're correct, just kind of flesh that out a little bit more. Okay. Well, not, not only that, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't even feel that you had a conflict because there'd be no such thing as, I mean, there, there's no such thing as lying, ultimately. Lying might apply in this context, but you, you neither lied nor did you withhold the truth in this situation. How would a conflicted absolutist respond? Sorry, did you want to add to that, Glenn? Well, I was just going to say, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Okay. We're going to touch on that momentarily. But just thinking of this situation, the German Christian has a Jew hidden in the closet. The Gestapo police officer, military police, comes to your door and says, do you have a Jew? The situational ethicist would say there's neither right or wrong in this situation. The conflicted absolutist would say what? Well, they would say, I'm going to maybe lie, but I am sinning, and I'm going to go to my prayer closet after and ask God for forgiveness. The graded absolutist would lie and say, I didn't sin. I'm not asking God to forgive me of anything. I did what was right. Now, if you were to kind of go back in our list here and you were to look at, let's say, um, the unqualified absolute approach, they would say, yes, I have a Jew in my closet. Oh, wherever it might be. So there... Now, this is not... This is not... Like, I personally know Christians that would have told me, I would say yes, and I would let God do what God does. But the, uh, if you were, uh, you know, have a Jew in your house somewhere, and you were stealing, he would bless your food because you were a Jew, so I think that would... Yeah, of course. I mean, there's all kinds of repercussions. But a person that falls into the category of unqualified, they'd say, I will always do what is right and let the chips fall where they may. I, I'm, I would be kind of surprised if there's some people in this room that wouldn't say that. I would say, yes, there's a Jew in my house. Now, others would say, and maybe not in this room, but the situationalists would say, right or wrong vary depending on the situation. Many of you would probably fall into the conflicted camp. I would say no, but I, I, I did lie, and I'm going to go ask for forgiveness. And others would say, Turning a person over to a tyrant, knowing that their life is going to be taken, is a greater evil than saying no. I'm going to say no, and I believe I actually did right. So we would call this justifiable lying or withholding of truth. So here here are the here are three principles that govern graded absolutism. These are very important. Every one of you needs to write these down. So these are the principles. Okay, You may not need all three for every situation you're in, but the first one would be that uh, love for God is always greater. You could add always if you want. Than love for man. So applied to the scenario we're looking at, the the rough way that one might apply that is to say, you know what? I'm supposed to love my fellow man. That means I'm supposed to love this Gestapo officer. But I love God more than him and always will. And one would reason then that in some way, 
uh, one might be able to express a greater love for God by withholding truth from a tyrant than somehow loving this guy as I would want to love myself. I mean, love for man is, you know, you love your neighbor as yourself. So would you want to be told the truth? Yes, you would. So a person could argue, well, if Jesus says you need to love your neighbor as yourself, well, the Gestapo is actually your neighbor. So I need to love him. But the great absolutist might say the greatest thing I could do for this man to love him would be to not facilitate his sinful behavior. And so I'm going to go with love for God first. So this is just a principle that kind of comes into the mix. And then the second principle is that um, obedience to God is greater than obedience to government. Now this is interesting because almost every Protestant, maybe every Protestant I've ever met believes this is true. We would say, okay, we gotta obey the laws of a land, but if the laws of a land ever require me to do something that violates God's law, I will obey God first regardless of the consequences. I think probably almost maybe even every Christian I've met would agree with that. So when when the Bible says, this is not a recommendation. When the Bible calls us to honor and respect Caesar, to render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, it's financial, to respect authorities, to pray for authorities, these are not suggestions, these are absolutes. But then it also says we need to love the Lord God honor God. So you will understand that there are situations where the government may ask you to do something that is directly dishonoring to God. So that is a graded absolute. You have two options, God or government. God says obey the government. God says obey God. Graded absolutists would say, well, that's a classic example. I will disobey the law of the land, and I did not sin. A conflicted absolutist would say, I'm going to disobey the law of the land, but I actually still sinned. So this is one of the principles that govern it. And then the third principle is that mercy is greater Now, um, I struggled with what, what word to use here. I was going to say truth. But I think I'm going to use the word veracity, which is a little bit of an odd word. But veracity contains within it the idea of truth, but it goes beyond truth as an abstract thing and speaks to a, a measure of commitment. So I have a veracity for truth. I have a passion for truth. Well, sometimes a passion for truth 
can stand in the way of mercy or love or grace. Now, some people are more into veracity than they are into mercy. So like, I'm always going to go with veracity over mercy. I don't care what the consequences are. I'm going to go with truth, and the, the Jewish person is going to be sent out with the Gestapo, and God's going to do what God's going to do because I'm going with the truth side of things. Okay, I mean, that sounds very orthodox, very evangelical, very biblical, but I'm going to show you some examples in the Bible where Jesus chose mercy over veracity, or at least biblical passages that seem to push for mercy over veracity. So in graded absolutism, if you're confronted with uh, two choices, you pick mercy over veracity. So we're going to go first of all to Mark 2. Now this is not actually an ethical dilemma, but it illustrates something very interesting. Let me ask you this, was Jesus born under the Old Covenant or New Covenant? Old Covenant. We often we read about Jesus in what we call the New Testament or the New Covenant Scriptures, but Jesus was still, in a sense, living in the Old Testament era, what we would call the Old Testament era, in the sense that he was he was a Jew, fully man, and he was under the Old Testament law, and the Old Testament law wasn't particularly uh, it was complex, but it wasn't confusing. I mean, you do this, you don't do that. So let's go to Mark chapter 2. And um, Jesus, of course, is... Uh, well, you can go back to 23. So he's he's traveling and he's picking grain, apparently, from a field and he's eating it. His disciples are eating it. And somebody who is into veracity points out his error and uh, uh, it's the Pharisees we're told in verse 24 look why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath now we like to pick on the Pharisees but that's actually a very excellent question the Pharisee was right to ask that question this is a good question because technically Jesus shouldn't have been doing that And uh, Jesus says, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. Now, I want you to think about what Jesus is saying there. Is Jesus saying, oh, you misinterpreted the law? Is he saying that? No. Is he saying uh, that's not in the law? Not saying that. Um, is he saying, well, I just decided to change the law? He's not saying any of that. Jesus, in no way, shape, or form, is accusing this man of being wrong in his understanding of what had been written in the Holy Scriptures. So, what is he doing then? Think about this. What is he doing?
Okay, we have the word exception on the table. Anybody here feel comfortable or uncomfortable with that word? Anybody here feel uncomfortable with the word exception? Couple. How about comfortable with the word exception? Jesus is providing an exception. This is pretty weak, folks. <laughs> you can always ask for forgiveness later. So we have, we have six people in the room with an opinion. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's true, but I don't think in this situation Jesus is challenging the man's understanding of what actually was written. But on the but he is challenging something else. He's challenging something else. Go ahead. Okay, go ahead. true he's pointing to he's he's clearly pointing to an, an, an exception to the rule which was made by someone that they do respect he knew they didn't respect him so he goes back and he he takes king david who doesn't respect king david in the time of the new testament right every jew does and he's he's using an example of where G, david himself did not follow the specifics of the law because the circumstances he found himself in were difficult. Now, were you, you going to say something, Joe? Now, why why might that be? Why would a person's need for sustenance be greater than the Sabbath law? Okay. <laughs> okay. Good. Good answer. Notice he says, "The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath." So he's helping them to understand that some of God's laws, um, you know, can be read just sort of at their base level without an understanding of the purposes behind them. But when one understands the purposes behind them, one understands that at times there may be exceptions to the rule. So one might say that one of God's laws is do not lie. Now I want you to think about this. Why do you think God does not want us to lie? Is it just because that's the law? Don't lie. Party, go, go ahead. Okay, he doesn't lie. Oh, He's a God of truth. Okay, let's. Okay, now we're moving. Very practical. It gets you into trouble. How does it get you into trouble? Give me an example. Okay, people are going to find out, but what does lying do to the nature of relationship, for instance? You lose. Yeah, you lose trust. Um, what else? 
Mm -hmm. So we often like hide and pretend behind our lies. We don't want to self, you don't want people to know too much about us. It's there's a pridefulness there. Okay, yeah. Okay, so Mark started us off, God doesn't lie. So we have this idea of not lying rooted in the character of God. But then we start to think about why. So we have several, I think, good, good suggestions on the table as to why we don't lie. There's a relational dimension to it. There's, there's trust issues. There's the expression of pride and self, self in lies. Someone up, I don't know, did you have your... Okay. Okay. Can you hear in the back? So basically, the idea of self, there's a self edification that's often attached to lying. Josie, did you have your hand up? Okay, so, okay, good, yeah. Okay, now, now let me, let me, let's go back to our Gestapo analogy. Are we concerned about having a good relationship with the Gestapo? Are we concerned about issues of trust? Is the withholding of the truth that there's a Jew in the closet an expression of pride? It's none of these things. All of those the elements that you just mentioned are absent from that relationship. So one would ask the question then, the way I would summarize what's been said here, the language I use, is that there's a redemptive value, there's a redeeming quality, you might say, or a redemptive value attached to truth-telling. But there may be situations where there is no redemptive value of any sort attached to truth-telling other than, I want to maintain the letter of the law. Thou, you know, don't lie. So let's think about this for a minute. Jesus, we have one example in the New, the New Testament. In an Old Testament context, where Jesus, in fact, arguably breaks the law. He breaks the law. But he breaks the law because he sees a greater redemptive value attached to feeding the hungry than keeping the law. Now, by the way, Sabbath law is ceremonial. Um, it's less tied to the moral character of God than lying is or murder is. It is ceremonial. So some people say, well, he's just starting to break down the ceremonial law here. That's all he's doing. Okay, well, you could argue that. But it's still a law, and it's still in effect when Jesus did this. 
keep that in mind. Now I want to give you two examples. These are also classic examples in ethical discussions of situations. Let's go to let's go to Exodus one, where okay, we're in Old Testament narrative. So here's the thing: when you're in narrative literature, meaning like story-like literature, when I say story, I don't mean fictional, but there are accounts that took place. You, 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 okay, how do I explain this? So in narrative, you don't have a lot of, here's the story and here's what you're supposed to get from it kind of discussion. The story is supposed to be powerful enough that you just understand the moral takeaways. So when you're in Exodus 20, it's thou shalt, thou shalt not, thou shalt, thou shalt not. It's very clear. When you're reading about, um, you know, Joseph overcoming temptation in Egypt, there's no little footnote that says, okay, so here's what you're supposed to, here's how you're supposed to preach this. Make sure everybody knows you're not supposed to fornicate. It doesn't give you that, but everybody knows reading it that he did a righteous thing by running from Potiphar's wife. It was a righteous thing. God blessed him for it. So we're going to look at, admittedly, we're going to look at two narrative situations in the, in the Old Testament where a person, the Bible doesn't specifically say they did right, but the people that lie are only portrayed positively. They're portrayed as righteous Jews, but they actually lie. So the first one is in Exodus 1. And uh, background here, just to set us up. Jewish nations explode with growth. They've gone from infertility to suprafertility. Everybody in Genesis had trouble having kids. The problem in Exodus, they're having like too many. Pharaoh takes notice. He's intimidated. He's threatened. The nation's exploding with growth, and he feels he needs to do something about it. So he decides he wants to kill all the male children on the, when they're being born in the birthing stool. So in verse 15 of chapter 1, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom's name was Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, now they're probably like chiefs, because I'm not, probably not true that there's like two delivering, you know, 20,000 babies a year, <laughs> but uh, probably like the head ones or whatever. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, she shall live. Well, that's a moral dilemma. In case you didn't pick up on it. Moral dilemma. So this is the king. They voluntarily moved into his country, by the way. <laughs> and uh, he is, you know, obey the law of the land. He says, I want the boys dead. But they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. I think that's specific. The details are there. They did not do what the Pharaoh commanded them. Well, you already know what he commanded, so why are they repeating it again? Because they want to drive home to the reader. They did not do what he commanded them to do. Now, you might say, well, that was good. They just didn't kill the babies. No, no, they actually told him a lie to, to justify their actions. So it goes on. Um, the Hebrew midwife, so he comes back, says, why have you not done this? Let, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, well, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. 
That's not true. That is a lie. So what does God do? And because the midwives feared God, this is immediately the next sentence, he gave them families. So, there's no footnote that says uh, their lying was justified, but their lying was justified. It's pretty hard to argue otherwise. Let's go to Joshua 2. And Glenn mentioned this one earlier. I remember when I first started studying these, it made me feel very uncomfortable. <laughs> and some of you may be experiencing that right now. Um, I've had a lot of years to think through them, but I, when I was first thinking about this, I was like, this, this makes me feel really uncomfortable. Nevertheless, we have the, the Jews are now... Um, the Jews are kind of in and around the land of Canaan, but they're trying to sort of get in and test things out. So they, they send some guys in, and they, they end up in Jericho. And uh, the bottom of verse 1, it says, They went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, the men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Which is true. That's what they were there for. Then the king of Jericho said to, sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men you, who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Now, this is not even like a Jew in the closet scenario. These guys are admittedly in someone else's country trying to take the city. So they're, they're spies, right? Uh, but the women had taken them and hidden them, and... Uh, she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Well, that's a lie. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. And then it goes on from there. Um, the Lord blesses her, the Lord blesses her house. And she's one of only like what, four women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. There's no negatives attached. She's blessed for that specific act. And we really don't know much else about her. Like, there's not like a bunch of narratives. Oh, she did this and she went on to do this. She did marry Caleb and whatnot. But we don't, there's no other real narratives about her life. But she is portrayed as a righteous Gentile in the text. And the only definitive thing, there's only two things we know that Rahab did. She had sex with a lot of people initially. She was a prostitute. And she lied to save the Jewish spies. Pretty sure she wasn't credited as being righteous for her previous acts of prostitution. But she was credited with righteousness for lying to protect God's anointed and appointed men. So I'm not sure what else you could do with these texts other than to say that there are times when God's moral laws conflict in the circumstances of life. The wise person needs to think through the reasons, the motivations for why God tells us not to do certain things. And in certain situations needs to grade them out. In this situation, I think it's right for me to break God's law as Jesus did, at least in the Sabbath-keeping instance, to push people toward a higher redemptive purpose. 
And in these two situations, there's clearly a higher redemptive purpose. Lives are saved. God, God's people take the promised land. And in the case of Jesus, the Pharisees begin to realize that they're thinking about the specificity of the law, and they have no idea why. Their, their sole goal is, I've got I to gotta keep the law, I've got to keep the law, I gotta keep, they have no idea why. And so Jesus' actions actually challenge them to try to figure out why. Now, the, the takeaway to this is not, uh, situationally decide when, when lying works for you and it feels good, you can do it. That's, not, that's situational ethics. And if that's what you're hearing, you need to go back through your notes because that's not what's been said. But it does appear in the scriptures that God's laws are graded. Now, if you, I'll give you one further piece of evidence. If you don't think God's laws are graded, then why is there different penalties attached to breaking them? Someone might have told you falsely, all sin is the same in the eyes of God. I'd like, I'd like you to find a verse to that effect that means what you're saying it means. If all sin is exactly the same, then why is it that some sin, sins are in damnable lists, even in the New Testament? Here's a list. These people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why is it that some sins under the old covenant, you do this, you're dead. Others, you do this, you pay a fine. Others, you do this, you know, you have to go to the priest. But these ones, you do them, you're dead. Clearly, there's a gradation of laws, moral laws, even in God's law, in both testaments. So yeah, all sin is, is sin in the sense that it's wrong. But even when it comes to the punishments attached, there's different degrees of punishment. And we understand this as parents. You don't punish your kid the same because he didn't eat his final spoon of porridge compared to, you know, he went and set the neighbor's house on fire. <laughs> and we don't do this in society. You don't punish a serial killer the same as you punish a 12-year-old jelly bean thief. It's, it's different. It's both wrong, but there's different attached. Sam, you want to make a comment? Yeah, well, in a lot of these situations that you pointed out, problem with it or, or a difficulty would be with it, first of all, you, you almost have to believe in degrees of sin, and unfortunately, from the situations that you pointed out to us, that interpretation is thrust on the individual mm -hmm. at the moment yes. to make that call. Mm -hmm. So, however noble or righteous or virtuous the decisions may be, yeah. it's still being kind of left to an individual in certain specifics to quickly make that degree yes. of sin and make that decision on yeah. their own. And, yeah. and that there would be dangers also associated with that. Absolutely, yeah. That's true. But yeah. I mean, there's also just plain old danger, danger attached to ignorance. We many of us haven't read and familiarized ourselves with the whole Bible. So especially a newer believer, they just may not know yet. So they're making their decisions with a very limited amount of knowledge. It's sort of similar to what you're saying. There's always... You can buy and degraded absolutism in theory and still err in your application of it. But it seems to me to be the best ethical system when you compare it to scriptural evidence and when you see the, the I would say, glaring flaws or impracticalities in the others.
sort of pushes you into that category. You, you bring a good point to the mix. You know, in the Old Testament, the, 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 the visual image was God's laws chiseled in stone. Stone's pretty permanent. But people had a really hard time obeying it, and clearly, based upon the Pharisees' actions, they had a really hard time understanding it, like its purposes. Um... By the way, I, I think that those of you that are teachers of morality to children, you are you may not be obligated to do this, but you're going to get a whole lot further when you teach rules with reasons attached than if you just teach rules. You know the old saying, rules without reasons equals rebellion. So you're just, you're just wiser to always attach reasons to the rules. Help people to sort out, actually, yeah, it's, it's probably good for me to do this or not do that. Anyway, so clearly though God saw that the people without an indwelling spirit and a heart of flesh were unable to do that. So Joel 2, seven centuries before Christ, he prophesies that there's, there's going to be a day when the law is going to be written on your hearts. And that is fulfilled, I believe, in Acts 2. Well, it is. I mean, he, Peter quotes Joel, Joel 2 directly. And uh, there is a sense then under the new covenant in which our moral consciences are heightened compared to that of the old covenant believer because we have the added benefit of an indwelling spirit who does guide and direct, we believe. That doesn't mean that every time I have a feeling that I'm necessarily being led by the spirit. It may just be my own wish or will. But there is a sense in which the believer the maturing believer can increasingly rely upon the work of the Spirit moving in his or her life to guide them through these difficult situations. Of course, hey, you also need to realize one day you're going to stand before the judgment seat and give an account. So if you do mishandle a situation, you're going to give an account for it or you're going to confess it that night. But um, when we get to all, all these words I had written up here before, uh, graded absolutism is a hundred times more helpful in understanding gaming ethics, cloning ethics, reproductive ethics, issues of war. In fact, I don't think any of these other situation, other um, models help at all in answering these questions. So if you're not convinced tonight that graded absolutism is probably a biblical paradigm, when we actually start working through these scenarios, I would challenge you to try to apply any of these other situations consistently to them and come up with good, good responses. You're going you're gonna to have a lot of work to do, whereas graded absolutism certainly does help. Well, let's, uh, let's pause, and it's quarter to eight, so here's what we're going to do. Um, whatever works for you, okay, being very relativistic tonight, uh, whatever works for you, if you want to pray where you're at, 
by yourself, that's fine. If you want to turn to the person next to you, form groups of three, four, ten, that's fine. So what you'll want to do then is take the uh, third set of notes on the ethics of war. We're just going to barely get into this tonight, just for the, and we'll pick up on, this will be our topic uh, that we'll spend the lion's share of class number two on. So we're talking about war. Um, you know, I don't know the statistics, but people have said things to the effect that there's more war in our world today than in all of human history combined. I mean, you hear things like that. Again, I don't know if they're speaking uh, with a bit of exaggeration or not. But when you think about ISIS and various wars that seem to be taking place in the Middle East and across Central Asia, when you think about uh, mid to Southern Africa, and the wars that seem to always be popping up there, uh, some of the skirmishes, maybe not wars, but some of the skirmishes in South America, um, some of the things we've seen take place in Eastern Europe, there's a lot of war. And, you know, considering we've been around for thousands of years, we still haven't seemed to figure this one out. We're still fighting with each other and carrying on. So this is not, this, this concept of war and the Christians' involvement in war has been an ongoing conversation for centuries in the church. And it's relevant because there's still war. And the conversation that we're going to have tonight and next week informs the Christian soldier. It informs the Christian politician. It informs the Christian who's voting for politicians. It includes, it, it informs how we pray about war the conversations we have about uh, what's right or wrong or how we should respond to ISIS or other threats like that. This is the, a significant uh, ethical question. It's huge because um, our decisions that we make on this topic affect life itself. Our decisions affect countries. Our decisions affect governments. Our decisions also affect attitudes. Think about this. It affects for the, the attitude of forgiveness. It affects our attitudes and understandings of what justice actually is. What is justice? You know, the Old Testament prophets spoke an awful lot about justice, an awful lot about our responsibility to the, to the alien. That means someone who's not our countryman to the sojourner, to the widow, to the orphan, to the downtrodden, to the slave. God had a lot to say about justice. It affects our attitudes about corporate responsibility. It's easy to just sort of cop out and say, I'm just going to be responsible for myself. But we live our lives together in community. And we also need to be thinking about not just about individual responsibilities, but what corporate responsibilities do we have as families, as a church, as a city, as a province, as a country, as a continent? Um, what are our corporate responsibilities? So when it comes to war, we're, we're sort of looking at both the idea of the individual's ethic the soldier, the politician, the person on the battlefield. But we're also talking about a corporate ethic. What are the ethical responsibilities of the country of Canada? 
what are the ethical responsibilities of collections of countries toward a tyrannical re regime? Now, this is not a new question. Uh, the question of preoccupation of participation in war has occupied the minds of Christians for centuries. Now, just in very broad sweeps, uh, some church historians have plotted out the Christian response to war as follows. So we have the early church. We have the uh, medieval church. And we'll just call it the modern church. So these are just very broad sweeps, right? Lots of exceptions to the rule for individuals' perspectives. But generally speaking, the early church favored passivism. which basically means we're going to be passive with regard to war. The medieval church believed in both defensive and offensive war. So you can not only protect yourself if someone's coming at you, you can go and wage war on others. The modern church tends Again, speaking in broad strokes, our, my Mennonite friends will disagree, but the, the dominant ethic in the modern church today is what's called just war. We'll talk about these different systems. I want you to be very careful about um, this trend. It's not really a trend. People have been doing it for a long time. Oftentimes, we'll say, oh, if life were only like what it was in the early church. Or if we're trying to figure out how we should respond to things, let's just be like the early church. Okay, I've read about the early church. Uh, Corinthians, Ephesians, wasn't rosy. Secondly, when it comes to the patterns of the early church and for example its response to war you have to think about the context what was a christian in the first the latter part of the first century it wasn't a canadian it wasn't an israeli it wasn't a people group it was a whole bunch of people here and there and they predominantly were outlaws secondly in their situation they were being chased down and hunted and persecuted by whom Rome. So it's not an analogous situation. It's obvious they were pacifists because they weren't a country. And why would they go to war with the group that's trying to kill them? Okay, so the point being is, can't say, well, that's the answer to the question. We need to be pacifists because the early church was. Well, it's kind of because they had to be. And they weren't really equipped for anything but. That doesn't mean pacifism is not the biblical answer. We're going to have to think about that. But we can't just go back in time and say, oh, the further back we go, the better t paradigm we're going to discover. Now, in the medieval church, we also need to think about the situation they were in. The medieval church, which predominantly was in northern and western Europe, favored defensive and offensive action. Uh, the defensive part... Okay, we don't really need to talk a lot about that. I mean, obviously, someone's attacking you. They would get together. Most people said they were Christians. It was sort of 
Christianity became very cultural. Oh, if you're English, you're a Christian. We don't see that in Canada. If you're uh, German, you're a Christian, whatever it might be, right? So the whole country would identify with Christianity. So therefore, one would argue, is it really the church's stance toward war, or was it more the culture that happened to be Christianized? But the offensive component was largely because of the power of Rome, the power of the church, and the church being so involved in politics, and the desire to attack non-Christian countries or wage war in terms of the crusade. So that's why you have defensive and offensive war in the medieval era. And then in the modern uh, era, because I mean, up till recently, the modern church is predominantly, um, let's say up to the 1950s or so, the, what we call the modern church was primarily flourishing in democratic countries, free countries. Just war kind of made, made sense or makes sense in light of our notions of democracy and freedom. So you're not going to go, if you're a Democrat, you're not going to go wage war on someone, you know, just to take their stuff. That's contrary to your political notions. So just think about how culture and views of politics sort of feed into these dominant approaches to war. So I'm just mentioning that because we got to be careful not to think, well, uh, you know, they're, they're necessarily reading the Bible differently. There's a whole, whole lot of other influences coming into the dominant historical views of the church. Now, the question then is... Uh, you know, were these views prevalent because of political or theological realities or both? Probably both. Um, personally, I think probably a little more because of political realities and cultural realities. I know it's kind of hard to uh, measure that. But my gut feeling is that these views were driven more by political cultural realities than theological realities. Which can be refreshing for us because that means that we can actually uh, criticize or favor any of these views based upon theological realities without necessarily um, taking our culture politics back or forward or identifying with any particular political party. Here are four responses that you might want to consider, but I don't think they take us anywhere in this question of the Christian's response to war. The first one is this. I'm just going to ignore it. That's a temptation. And you can do that. Say, I don't want to think about this. I'll leave that to Aaron to figure that out. Theologically, at least. Or I'll leave it to our prime minister to figure it out politically. Or I'll leave it to NATO to figure it out globally. I'll leave it to the Canadian Armed Forces to figure it out. So you can just ignore it. I'm not sure why you'd want to because of the fact that it affects lives, countries, governments, our idea of forgiveness, justice, and corporate responsibility. But you could do that. You say, I'm not, not going to think about it. You could uh, criticize these views and refuse to offer an alternative. They were wrong, they were wrong, they were wrong. Here's why. What do you think? I don't have a view. You could um, decline 
like I don't have power or authority. It's not for me to decide. Well, of course, it's not for you to decide what the government does, but you can influence culture and perspectives and people's ideas. Um, or you could just be patriotic about it. How dare you, how dare you bring theology into this? Uh, this is a political question. Okay? So you could just sort of say, well, what, 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 are the, what are other Canadians think? Let's be patriotic. Let's just kind of think about it purely from political perspectives. I don't think that's responsible. I think the Christian is, first of all, called to think theologically and as a far distant second, politically. Most of us spend more time watching and considering politics than we do thinking theology. And so you talk to a lot of Christians that have very well-developed political views on these kinds of things, but they haven't necessarily thought through it theologically. So they may be right, but they don't, they don't have any background to it, or they may be wrong because they're, they're not studying scripture. So I, I think that ignoring it, criticizing it, declining it, or just going with the patriotic approach, we should probably set on the shelf and be a little more proactive and theological in terms of how we address the issue of war. So this, this means that like if you have a military background or you have brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, grandparents that uh, fought in a war or are in a war right now or you have a particular political affiliation and you feel you sort of got to go with the status quo, you need to choose to put that aside. First and foremost, go to the Bible, try to understand what the Bible teaches, the principles of the scripture and how they play a role. And then you can sort of try to apply those to your cultural and family backgrounds and political views. Let's begin with what Christians agree on. We should cheer a little bit here because there's actually certain things that Christians agree on when it comes to war. Don't hear a whole lot of people debating these ones. Here's what they are. Christians agree that war is horrible and that we should pray for peace. You might find the odd knucklehead that doesn't agree with that, but as a whole, speaking in generalities, we don't like war. We want there to be peace in the world. It doesn't bring us joy when people are being butchered on battlefields or in cities. Secondly, we agree and we understand that war is part of a fallen world and will remain until the end. In fact, the end of the world will include some pretty cataclysmic battles. Not just spiritual ones, but physical battles. Third, we agree that the stakes are very high, and so an informed decision is paramount. This is a significant issue. Fourth, I would say the vast majority of Christians would agree that the holy wars of the Old Testament as pertaining to Israel, they inform our choices about war, but they're not directly transferable because we're dealing with different, a different dispensation. And we're not a holy ethnic group. We're, the church is global and our promised land is heavenly. So there's, there, it's not a, it's not a, the, the decisions that the Israeli made, Israelis made in ancient times under the direction of God. Yeah, they inform this question, but it's a very different paradigm we find ourselves in. So a, a well 
versed Christian should never say, we should go to war because Israel went to war. There's a little, a little more complex than that. Uh, at the same time, it would be false to argue, Jesus didn't go to war, so we shouldn't go to war. Another point is that uh, there, there is no, unfortunately, for those of you that are real black and white, you just, you just want the proof text, you know, that, that one verse that answers the question, the silver bullet, there isn't one. There's no one verse that justifies any position with 100% confidence. And if you find it, there's others that are quickly going to, if you're 100% sure this verse justifies your view. There's other verses that are probably going to maybe at least knock that down to a 75, 60, maybe 50% confidence level. There's, there's a variety of scriptures here we have to look at. And some of them are admittedly a little difficult. Um, another thing we agree on is that conscription, we all know what conscription is. Conscription is when, for various reasons, uh, a government essentially forces uh, a, a slice of their populace to go to war. So you, you just have to do it. Okay, here's the gun, you go or you're dead. So conscription and other world realities, let's just admit this, make it difficult for us to live our ethic. So you could say, oh, I'm into this, I'm into this, I'm into this. But then the realities of the world within which you live may force you to live within a different reality than you actually idealistically hold to. So someone might say, I am absolutely committed to pacifism. And then they see someone dragging off their wife by the hair to shoot them, and they're suddenly no longer a pacifist. Or, you know, I believe in just war, and your government calls you to fight in a particular battlefield. And once you get there, you start to think, I'm not sure this is a just war, but I'm already here. I thought it was just, but it's not. What do I do? Do I just do I run home? I can't. So there, there's political realities that sometimes make it difficult for Christians to actually live the ethic that they uh, hold to. But we, we understand we understand that. So let's get into some views. Uh, the views I'm going to introduce you to, not all tonight. The first one you can just, uh, I think they're in your notes. The first one is non-resistance. The second one is passivism. Uh, the third one is called just war theory. And the fifth one is called preventative, or sometimes it's called preemptive war theory. Um, these are the dominant ones that Christians uh, hold to today. And we're going to look at lots and lots of scriptures, so uh, have your Bible ready. So non-resistance. So let's just define it. We'll start there. In a nutshell, this is the view that Christians should participate in war, but only in the role of non-combatants. I used to work throughout high school for a plumber, and uh, his name was Frank Gowing, and he, uh, he was telling me that his older brother, um, I think it was World War II it would have been, he was involved in World War II, but he, he, he was like a, called him a conscientious objector. So he would, he would assist the war effort, but he, he would refuse to be an actual like soldier, infantryman, or you know, armored tank driver or whatever it might be. So he, he would do his part. An example of this is some Christians, like even World War I, World War II, they'd say, okay, we'll go as nurses, we'll drive the ambulance, um, we may even go as medics, don't give us a gun, 
uh, don't give us a sword, we will not take life. So that's non-resistance. A little different than passivism, which we'll get to later. So here's here's the uh, there's a whole series of arguments behind this. We'll just try to summarize it. The bullet point number one is that uh, violence of all sorts is directly tied to the sin of the fall. It's a good point. There wouldn't be we wouldn't be talking about war theory if there wasn't the fall. And last time I checked, we're all trying to like reverse the effects of the fall. So the non-resistance, well, I don't want to contribute to it by another contribution of violence in our world. Uh, secondly, they would understand that various international organizations have been formed, whether it's countries or kind of like international agencies, like maybe NATO, have been formed to stem the tide of total destruction or violence. So they would understand that. They would, they would understand that. So point number one, they don't, they don't want to contribute to it, but they understand that there's organizations that have been formed to sort of hold back greater violence than we otherwise would normally see. So let's go to Matthew 5. These are different scriptures that uh, a non would draw the eye of someone who holds to this, this particular war theory. There is a book, by the way, you could Google it. Um, it's f four, I think it's Four Views on War, something like that. Uh, there's a bunch of views books out there. I know Glenn has several of them. I've got a bunch. They deal with different topics, but I, I know there's one out there on war. And the thing I like about these books is it'll it'll it picks like I think there's four four theologians, each which each of whom hold to one of these positions, and then he writes his chapter arguing his position. Then the other three guys respond with a short chapter telling why he's wrong, and then the next guy writes his chapter, and the other three respond telling him why he's wrong. And it goes through the book. So it's actually a nice way of setting it up because you hear from each guy and then you hear each guy debate, try to debunk the other guy's view. And there's one on war if you're, if you're interested in it. It's probably 25 years old now, but uh, it sets it up nice. I, I don't find them, well, yeah, you, you might find them confusing. I, I find them affirming because uh, the guy that holds my view is always the best written. So um, I'm very thankful for that. So uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 38 to 48, Jesus is talking about retaliation and vengeance and um, you know, the whole eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. Um, but I say to you, by the way, he's, he's actually summarizing Levitical law. <laughs> It's not just what you heard it, it. Did you see it on the graffiti on the wall of a city? No, no. He's he's taking them back to the concepts of Levitical law. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, um, 
there's a lot in there. And, uh, you know, in fairness to this view, uh, I don't want at this point to thoroughly exegete that passage. But we, we will need to come back to that passage to try to understand how the other views deal with that passage. But for the time being, at first read, Jesus is definitely advocating uh, a reduction of violence and telling the Christian, like, revenge and retaliation is not an ethic I want you to pursue. So it's, it completely makes sense that someone would use that text in reference to the non-resistance platform. Let's go to Romans 12. I've put most of these like in biblical order, so you don't have to flip. You can just keep going forward for the most part. A couple of them we got to go back, but Romans 12, 2. So Romans 12, 2 says, um, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So just the whole idea of, well, just because the world's doing it, why should I do it? That's the idea there. And then if you go down to 19 and 20, 21, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I shall repay, says the Lord. Then to the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by it, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is kind of this irony in Jesus' teachings um, that the, the, the sensible, resp- the human, the natural response when someone does you wrong is to do them wrong, even if your motivation is justice. But Jesus is like, you know what? I'm going to encourage you to try something a little different. Um, respond in a totally unexpected way with grace and love. And in fact, he uses the language, you'll overcome it. Okay. So the idea here is don't be conformed to the world's patterns. Um, I'll just reference, we won't go there, but John 17 and Jesus' high priestly prayer, uh, several junctures, he reminds the Christian, he actually reminds the church, he's speaking to the church there, that we are not of this world. And because the world is marked by violence, and we've already agreed that all Christians understand violence is wrong, that, well, there's redemptive violence, of course, but um, war violence is wrong, then why would we want to participate in it? So the idea of not being conformed. Let's pop back to, uh, to John, John 18, 36. What you're going to have to think about as you process these scriptures is, is this question, is there a different ethic that God ever issues to an individual as opposed to a group? So we, we tend not to think about that, but are there, for next week, is, are there any situations you can think of where God issues an ethical, okay, do this or don't do that, to an individual in the Bible 
but issues a different one to a group. Now that group might be a nation, it might be a church, it might be a group of elders, it might be the disciples wandering around, uh, it might be an army. Think about that. And this is going to help us to sort through some of these passages as well. John 18.36. What do we have there? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been uh, fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. So there we have this very interesting thing where Jesus actually acknowledges that he probably had enough disciples to wield maybe a bit of an uprising that would have put a stop to his actual crucifixion. Judea at the time of Christ was very volatile. And while the Romans ruled it, it was loosey-goosey. Those of you that took the course in the history of Israel with me last year, I mean, it's actually fascinating how much authority the Jews still had. Um, It would not have been difficult for Jesus to have initiated an a political, maybe even military uprising similar to the, that of the Hasmonians that may even have unseated Roman rule in Palestine at the time. But he didn't. And he seems to be acknowledging that here. If my kingdom were of this world, I wouldn't be going to the cross. But he actually encourages his, his disciples not to participate in violence to free him from his imminent crucifixion. And then uh, Colossians 1.13, you could write that down. Uh, we're part of the kingdom of Christ. Um, Philippians 3.20. These are all sort of similar ideas. Our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 16, we're, we're called pilgrims and strangers. So the idea there being that if we're just sort of passing through, why would I want to bog myself down with all of these complex factors that lead to war. I want to sort of be heavenly minded. So again, these passages are are ones that the person who believes in non-resistance would use to call the Christian not to participate in the violence of war. And the fact that Jesus in John 18 chooses to not resist evil with violence while it doesn't directly relate to war they would say is a pattern or an example of how we should respond to violence in our world we're going to leave it there we're about a one-third of the way through the list of scriptures just under this category but we're out of time Um, so bring your notes next week pencils pens and we'll we'll get back right into it thanks for coming tonight and um if you haven't registered online, just please do that because um, just want to make sure we're not over or under photocopying uh, for the course. So just very simply go on, go on to our website and register for the course.